Tonight in your Bible, we invite you to turn to Micah chapter 1. We'll be reading and considering the section that begins at verse 10 and continues through the end of verse 16 or the end of the chapter. And you can find this on page 1070 in the Pew Bible. As you make your way to that passage of the Holy Scriptures, a word of explanation behind the prophetic books. Of course, there is underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's a unity uh, to these prophetic books. But we also do well to remember that they are a collection, you might say, of prophetical oracles. An oracle simply being an official pronouncement uh, that the prophets, in the service of the Lord God, as they functioned in the execution of their prophetic office, they would come forth uh, in Israel, the various cities and towns, and they would give forth these announcements, you might say. Now the word prophet, uh, and boys and girls, you you also I can begin to understand this. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. At least a true prophet. A true prophet comes with a message that he has received from God concerning something that's going to take place in the future. So in essence, a prophetic oracle is a pronouncement of some action that God is going to perform in the future. Uh, So you might also say it is a foretelling, a telling about an event before it even happens. Not as if the prophets took a guess, or or not like weathermen do, or others who study all of the analytics and make a prediction based upon those analytics of what will happen. But having received a message from God, the sovereign ruler and creator of everything, the prophets then went forth to the covenant people of God and said, Thus saith the Lord, this is what will happen And therefore, this is what you are to do. So we have the second prophetical oracle. uh, The first one being in verses 2 through 9. The second one we find in verse 10 through 16 of Micah 1. Here now together the reading of the Word of God. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Aphra, roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shephir. The inhabitant of Zanon does not go out. Eth Ezel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Meroth pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you shall give presents to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Ixib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Mersha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. Thus far this evening, the reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there's a a saying, batten down the hatches. I believe it comes from uh, the Navy uh, or of sailing upon the sea. And the idea is, is that when you see a less than favorable weather on the horizon, you take the appropriate action and you prepare the ship for the encounter uh, of the storm upon the seas. And, and boys and girls, you also know that sometimes you can see a storm coming. 
Usually you look off on the western horizon and you can see the thunderclouds beginning to make their way. And I believe in older generation, our, our grandparents perhaps were more perceptive of this type of a thing. I remember my own grandfather and he had all sorts of ways of telling the weather. He would say when the cattle all gathered together under the tree in the pasture, rain's coming. And when the rain would begin to fall, if the chickens went out of the chicken coop and still scratched and fed, he'd say it's going to be an all-day rain. And then he also had a statement, when there's bubbles in the puddles, you know it's going to be a substantial rain. But they also just had a way of looking upon the horizon and picking up different cues. There were statements such as, oh look, the sun's drawing water. Likely rain tomorrow. Or, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. So we understand this concept of looking upon the horizon and seeing a storm on the horizon and taking the appropriate action to prepare for the coming of that storm. Micah's doing something similar in our text, but he's not making some prediction based upon old wives' tales or some farmer's almanac knowledge. But as we said in the introduction, even prior to the reading of the Scripture passage, Micah is serving as a prophet of the Lord God Almighty. And as a prophet, he had this, this responsibility to receive a message from the Lord God and then to proclaim that message to the people the covenantal people of the Lord God. And what Micah says in our passage is essentially this. There is a storm on the horizon. And what the text says to us tonight also is this. There is a storm on the horizon. Now it doesn't make that proclamation just so that we can note with curiosity and some type of detracted interest. Oh yes, look, there's a storm on the horizon. This ought to be interesting. Let's see what happens. Nor is the response to be, oh, there's a storm on the horizon. I can't wait until the wrath and the justice of God strike down the ungodly neighbors around me. But rather the proclamation that there is a storm on the horizon ought to cause each and every one of us individually, but also corporately, to humble ourselves before the God who sends such messages, and who is a God who rides upon the clouds of judgment. Micah is a prophet to the southern tribes as the kingdom of the southern Israelites begins its slow but steady decline. The Assyrians will be coming and their captivity that they bring as instruments of God's chastisement. But when Micah begins his prophetic oracles, the covenant people there in the southern tribes, they're living a life of ease. You might say things are going well. There's economic prosperity. Each man, so to speak, is sitting underneath his fig tree. Uh, and the fields are, are ripe for harvest. And, and life is going good. And it is especially at such times as that when there is this danger that is amplified of self-idolatry, of complimenting oneself, and of taking ease within oneself, of thinking, well, I, I have built my barns and I have established my fortunes. My, look at the kingdom that I have built. And look at the kingdoms that we have built. Come, let us drink and be merry, for life is good. 
And in such a context, Micah is given the difficult, but also the necessary responsibility to walk, so to speak, up and down the streets of the southern kingdom and say, externally there is prosperity, but spiritually there is idolatry. And God is coming in judgment. And so we turn our attention to the text with this theme, the Lord warns His people of judgment. Uh, One commentator summarizes that this second prophetical oracle is a prediction of disaster, concluding with a call to lamentation. So the theme tonight, the Lord warns His people of judgment. Well, notice first of all the revelation of the warning of judgment, and then secondly the reason in the warning of judgment, and thirdly the response to the warning of judgment. So the Lord warns His people of judgment, the revelation, the reason, and the response to these warnings of judgment. And to go back to the introductory illustration of a storm gathering on the western horizon, imagine that a tornado is coming, and the sirens sound, and the prediction is certain to be fulfilled. And now we must take the appropriate action. Notice with me, first of all, then, the revelation of the warning of judgment. If you just simply read the passage, you can make no mistake of what the Lord is telling His covenantal people. Judgment. Judgment is coming, but the ironic thing within the text is that judgment is not coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That has already happened. Judgment is not coming upon Babylon or upon Nimrod, or upon the Tower of Babel. But as we mentioned in our introductory sermons, what is so striking about this prophetic oracle is judgment is coming upon the covenantal people of the Lord God. Those chosen people. Those recipients of divine favor who had been separated from Egypt and who had been brought... Uh, through the wilderness wanderings, now to be placed in the promised land. Having dispossessed the Canaanites, they dwelt there in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And there in Jerusalem is where the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's unique and special covenantal presence. It was there in Jerusalem that the temple was built in all of its magnificence. And it was there that the covenant people dwelt uh, in a very special way with the Lord their God. But now... Micah comes and says, judgment is coming. And he does so as a prophet looking forward. Looking forward down the days and the weeks and the months of coming human history. And then the reason that the prophets of the Lord God could speak with such certainty is a twofold reason. First of all, because our Lord, the one true God of heaven and earth, is an eternal God. And in His eternal decree, He has fashioned all of the days of human history. Uh, so the, the error, the, the heresy really of some type of open theism uh, that continues to pop its head up throughout the history of the Christian church, and that is this idea that God somehow doesn't know what the future holds uh, and sits with all types of anticipation trying to look and to see and to discover along with us what's going to happen. That's a lie. God knows the end from the beginning because He in His sovereignty has decreed everything that will take place. And He now comes, and this is the second 
point that we really ought to notice in connection to how this revelation takes place. God is not only a God who has decreed everything that will come to pass, but also reveals to us some of the things that are to come to pass. And so, Micah is given this picture of the future through the divine self-revelation of the Lord God. And he sees the destruction of numerous southern cities and villages that are listed there within our text. And as he does so, he warns of pending judgment. But he does so in a unique way as he compresses through what many theologians and Bible scholars call prophetic foreshortening. So prophetic foreshortening is when prophets in the Old Testament underneath the influence of divine self-revelation looked forward into human history and saw one thing coming. That is the judgment upon impenitent idolaters that would take place in two stages. And so you have the initial judgment in Micah's own day that comes upon the southern tribes of Israel underneath the oppressive a regime of the Assyrians. Uh, but that, you might say, was just a foreshadowing. It was a prototype. It was a figure of that final judgment that is to come with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like you might say, uh, and certainly we don't wish for uh, any destruction of property or life, but imagine that a tornado is coming and it, and it comes and it hits the western side of town. But then it moves forward and so God's judgment also it did indeed hit the southern tribes of Israel as well as the northern tribes of Israel long before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's also the second and even the greater expression of God's righteous judgment. So we have confessed and we confess every single Sunday night. I believe among the various things that we believe, we believe based upon the revelation that is given in the Word of God That Jesus Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. Now Micah in his historical context is speaking about the judgment that is to come upon the southern tribes through the agency of the Syrians and of their military force. But as he speaks of that, he's also referring to the final execution of God's retributive justice as the Lord Jesus Christ rides forth at the culmination of human history in an expression, among other things, of God's severe judgment. And so there is a historical warning in the days of Micah, but also a contemporary warning. And this is proven, you might say, by what we find in the New Testament, which fits very, very well with what we find in the Old Testament. Because, of course, while there is a historical progression within the revelation of God's Word, there is an organic unity. And so you can think for just one example of 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1-3. through And there Paul writes, "...but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night." And now, I want you to notice the parallelism between the context of Micah's day. We said that the southern tribes were enjoying a certain measure of economic peace and prosperity. Life was good. And so Paul says also in 1 Thessalonians, when they say peace and safety, and that's exactly what you so often hear, oh, everything is fine, everything is good, and everything's getting even better. 
On one hand, you might say, the secular contemporary uh, opinions are of one extreme or the other. Either people are walking around saying everything is absolutely terrible and human history has fallen off in the rails, or people are saying, don't worry. The evolution of humanity. We will solve all of our problems and we will bring ourselves into the experience of some type of utopia. Well, both miss the mark. For when men cry out, peace and safety, Paul says, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And so also preaching, and this is not the most enjoyable aspect of preaching, but preaching if it's going to be faithful preaching, if it's going to expound the text of the Word of God. And certainly, Gospel ministers are not the equivalent of Old Testament prophets, but there is a correlation and so in our contemporary times, not exclusively, but faithfully, the church does also through its ministry and through its preaching need to proclaim that there is a coming judgment. Now I'm under no impression that such messages will fill the, the seats to an overflowing capacity. This is not a popular message. It was not popular in Micah's day. It was not popular in Jesus' day. It was not popular in Paul's day. But the question when it comes to preaching must never be what is popular, but what is faithful. I, I, and when you read Micah 1, verse 10 through 16, to be faithful to the text, there has to be this proclamation that God has clearly revealed that there will be a coming judgment. And He has clearly revealed that that coming judgment will not just impact the ungodly out there in the world, but that there will also be a sifting of the covenant community of the external church. And that individuals who are associated with the external church also will find themselves under the sentence of God's just judgment. Well, that brings up the question that we consider in our second point, but as we transition, let us settle it within our minds and within our hearts that there will be a coming judgment. Why? The reason in the warning of judgment, uh, the reason, first of all, must be explained in reference to an act of God. The things that were going to happen to the southern tribes in the subsequent years were not just events that happened by chance or fortune or by a bad hand of luck. The events that were going to happen in the life of the Israelites in the southern kingdom were not just a, a mere consequence of human actions. It's not just as, as, well, the Israelites did this, and so the Assyrians did this, and then these factors also contributed in. You know, that's often how we look at events and try to explain it. Well, well, this happened at a horizontal level, and this happened at a governmental level. But if you look very carefully in the text, verse 12, the second part of verse 12 is very clear. But disaster came down from the Lord. The Lord wants to make it very, very clear that the disaster that is going to come upon these southern kingdoms has its ultimate origin in the Lord Himself. And He does so because we are experts at explaining things away. We're experts at saying, well, this happened because of that. Because of these events. 
And we love to explain things away as just a, a sort of natural consequence. But when judgment comes upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it comes from the hand of the Lord. The Lord is the acting agent. Now, of course, this rules out any type of secular humanistic explanation for why divine judgment comes. It comes from the Lord. And what we ought to be reminded of, among other things, and what we really need to have transform our minds is just this basic thought. The Lord God Almighty is sovereign over the history of the entirety of the world. And if we leave tonight, and notice that this also ought to motivate not us just as we leave, but this also ought to motivate us. This is why, this is why we worship. Because God is worthy to be worshipped because He is the Sovereign One over every single aspect and every single moment of human history. He is God. He is the majestic supreme being who orders all of our days and all of the days of the entirety of the human universe and of the existence of everything that exists. And judgment also comes from the hand of the Lord. To be more specific, verse 13 identifies the reason. Uh, you notice there uh, that the inhabitant of Lachish is exhorted to harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. And then you have this, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Now, at our last Micah sermon two weeks ago, we looked at this word transgressions. We'll look at it briefly again tonight. There are a variety of biblical words used that describe thoughts, inclinations, actions that a human being performs that are not in conformity to the law of God. The most common word, and again, uh, we do this at the pains of repetition, but we do it nevertheless. The most common word is sin. It means to miss the mark. To miss the mark of what? Uh, the, the target, so to speak, of God's holiness and of His moral commandments. So any inclination, any tendency, any desire, any thought, any action, any word that misses the requirement of God's holy standards is a sin. Uh, but other words are also used, and so there is this transgression, or in the plural, transgressions. Uh, this is the idea of a legal rebellion. So not just to miss the mark out of ignorance, which is still sin, but it's sin of ignorance, but, but this is to sin with a rebellious defiance. And most commonly, it is connected to the worship of the Lord God. And, and, and we need to be reminded, why did God redeem His people? Why does God save people? Why does God justify people? Why does God sanctify people? Why will God glorify people? And just pause for a moment. If you had to give the number one reason why God saves people, what would your answer be? Well, the answer is given by God Himself. The Father is seeking worshipers. This is what Jesus Christ tells the Samaritan woman. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But for what reason? Because the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And, and that's why transgressions are when the covenant people of God 
in a form of idolatry, rebel against the proper worship of the Lord God. And when the external company of the covenant people of God, when they engage in actions of idolatry in relationship to worship, there is nothing that offends God more. Now perhaps we think of the gross perversions that are found in the world, and certainly there are gross perversions of sinful conduct. But that's not what's happening in Micah 1. What's happening in Micah 1 is idolatry. Idolatry as it impacts the worship of the covenantal Lord God. Now, idolatry. What exactly is idolatry? A helpful definition is given by our Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 95 to the simple question, what is idolatry? The answer is idolatry is to conceive or have something else in which to place our trust instead of or besides the one true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. Oftentimes, and I have this too, when I think of idolatry, I I think of statutes that people bow before. You you might think of some ancient religion and of totem poles and of uh, Buddhas and everything else, but idolatry, perhaps it has evolved in its form and in its fashion, but it's still very, very, very common and very, very deadly. And idolatry in our context often takes the form of the celebration of myself. So that in one form or another, I set myself up as the object in whom I trust. And I set myself up as the object uh, to which I look. And you can see how this begins to infect the church when the question is more, what do I want, rather than what does my Lord God want? And it's ironic that we can, with our lips, profess that my greatest comfort is that I am not my own, but belong to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but also have this underlying current, but I want this. But I want that. And that's exactly how the inhabitants of the southern tribes in Israel were living. Yes, we have our Lord, and we're thankful that He's given us this very nice place in which to live. But we're doing pretty well ourselves. We've set up a bustling economy, trade as well. In contemporary language, the stock market continues to go up. The grain prices are favorable. The harvest is plentiful. Why? We better build a few more barns. And let's sit back and enjoy what we have accomplished and what we have done. And let's begin to worship in different ways. Let's begin to bring in something of our own inventions and something of our own imaginations. Remember those green places, those high hills that way back in Deuteronomy the Lord commanded us to destroy them? Let's rebuild them. Let's bring everything up to speed. Let's evolve our worship. And it is exactly in that type of a context that the Lord comes and says, the Lord is going to bring judgment because of the transgressions of Israel. So you have it laid out quite plainly. The reason for the coming judgment. Uh, But make no mistake about it. 
God does not just proclaim this to His covenantal people just to say there, end of story. Micah's ultimate purpose was not simply uh, in some type of Jonah 4 type of way to, to dump loads of judgment upon a people and walk back and wait for the fire and the brimstone to begin the consumption, but rather even when God warns us of the coming judgment, it is ultimately for a saving purpose. And that brings us into our third point, the response to the warning of judgment. Because you'll notice uh, that the prophetic oracle doesn't end with verse 15. You might say, well, that's, that's a very simple-minded statement. And it is. But imagine the difference if verse 16 wasn't there, if there was no instruction. If verse 15 was just simply, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. But Noah goes on and says, now this is how you are to respond. And, and there's some... You might say antiquated language here. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. Uh, and, and ultimately, this action uh, of the removal of one's hair was to symbolize not just a fashion statement or the inescapable reality of hair loss, but rather it was a symbol that was to indicate a mourning of heart, oftentimes associated with funeral practices or with being brought into captivity and being subjected to the oppressive rule of a, of a foreign nation, of the enslavement uh, into a tyrant. And so the Lord, through again His prophet, says to the people of the southern kingdom, you know what you really need to do in response to the revelation that I have given you that I am going to come through the instrument of the Assyrian armies to judge you for the idolatry and the transgressions you ought to humble your heart. Now, of course, we could discuss it more in depth in a different context or a different time. Uh, this response uh, that even as God gives this command to humble your heart in His sovereign grace, He produces exactly that humility within the hearts of the elect. But don't ever let in your theology the emphasis on the sovereignty of God overshadow the equal emphasis that Scripture gives on the responsibility of man. And I say that because some individuals in conservative Reformed churches, they throw up this shield and say, well, sovereignty of God, I can't humble my heart. Only God can humble my heart. That is absolutely true. But the way He humbles the hearts of the elect child of God is by the exhortations and the admonitions. So that when God says through His Word to you and to me after confronting you and I with the reality of the idolatry that lives in our heart. I am the idolater by nature. You are the idolater by nature. By nature, we are prone to trust in ourselves and to worship ourselves. And God comes and says, those who do such things will become subject to punishment. Now therefore, humble your heart. And even as that exhortation is given, the Word is powerful and living. And it produces that humility of heart. You can think also what James says in James 4, verse 7-10. through 10, Therefore, submit to God. And, and, and I can't help but saying in passing, James was... He was one of these guys that was black and white. And of course, all of the authors of Scripture spoke underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but there's a difference between James and John's style of writing and, and James and Peter's. And, and James, he's so blunt, you, you wonder what it would have been like to listen to him preach a sermon. 
Just listen to what he writes. And of course, this is underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And you might say at that point, well, well, he's not going to fill any sanctuaries. Well, he's not going to overflow in the auditoriums. I don't think James was concerned about being popular. He was concerned about being faithful. But he's not just out there browbeating the covenant people of the Lord God. He's giving them faithful instruction because notice how he ends lament and mourn and weep, not just as an end in and of itself, not with some type of unhealthy self-deprecation, but humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. If And this is, again, the ironic apparent paradox of the Gospel. It is when we humble ourselves that we are exalted. And those who try to exalt themselves... They are humbled underneath the oppressive judgment of God. But those who humble themselves, they are the ones who are graciously and mercifully lifted up. And and I don't think you find a more clear picture of this contrast than the two men whom Jesus told us about who went into the temple to pray. They were both worshiping, were they not? I speak here of the Pharisee and of the tax collector. They were both worshiping. Make no mistake about it. The Pharisee was worshiping when he said, Lord, I thank You that I am not like other men. He was worshiping in a proud and an arrogant fashion with all of his religious merits paraded out. I do this and I do that. And then the real seal of the deal for him, I thank You, Lord. He's even got gratitude in his worship. I thank You, Lord, that I am not like other men. Sometimes our arrogance can be wrapped in pretended humility. I thank You, Lord, that I'm not like that man over there. That tax collector. The tax collector, by contrast, he humbled himself. He also had a prayer. God, be merciful to me. And our English translations have a sinner. But in the original language, there is a definite article, the sinner. When you talked about a sinner, the tax collector didn't see anybody else. He saw only himself. So humble was he in a genuine, sincere sense of the word, he did not even dare lift his eyes up to the heavens. His prayer was much more concise, much shorter than that of the Pharisee. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, that man went home justified. That man, that person, who is genuinely and sincerely humbled, is the person who cries out for grace and mercy, which is there plentiful in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not that there's not grace. It's not that there's not mercy. It's just simply this, that God gives His grace and His mercy, including the forgiveness of sins to those who are humble. And who out of that humility 
cry out for salvation. The proud, arrogant, idolater never comes to the point where they cry out for salvation. And this is played over over and over and time and time again throughout the narratives of the Gospel ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The religious experts, they had no need of Jesus Christ. But the tax collectors, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the sinners, they saw their need for Jesus Christ. And I ask you with pastoral love tonight, do you see your need for Jesus Christ? When we talk about idolatry, do you see yourself or people out there seeing ourselves? Our cry is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then the wonderful promise which is given when we get to the end of Micah, who is a God like you forgiving iniquity? And that's what God does for those who are humble and sincerely penitent and believing. So let us receive this message in all of its force, yes, but in all of its simplicity, not as an end in and of itself, but as an exhortation given by a long-suffering Lord God to move us to genuine humility and sincere cries for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, difficult words that we have considered this evening, uh, we ask, Lord, that You would add now the increase, that we might continually be sincerely and genuinely and properly humbled before the face of our covenantal Lord God. That we search out our own hearts and find wherever that Pharisee resides, with all of his arrogant idolatry, May He be rooted out and may the spirit of the tax collector express itself in ever-increasing clarity within our hearts. God, be merciful to us, the sinners. But even as that cry comes forth from our heart, may we know that You are such a God. A God who gives grace upon grace to those who are genuinely humble. We ask then that Your name might be glorified also to this end. For Jesus' sake, Amen.